This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Thanks for tuning in. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show, and you're listening to 3CR. I'm Kurt Johnson. Today we have a show called Cold. How did we get here and how do we get out? We will be talking with Professor Judith Brett, who wrote the current issue of the quarterly essay called The Coal Curse. This fascinating piece of research examines how Australia came to rely so heavily on coal, how it came to influence our political system, and how psychologically it became a religion for much of the right wing in Australia. We will be chatting also with the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysts, Tim Buckley, about the future of coal. By very quietly during the COVID crisis, while so much of the world was distracted, 45 financial institutions divested from coal. Was it shareholder activism or simply the realisation that as an investment, coal is dead? And could this be the tipping point away from coal we were expecting? That's up later. Right now, though, we will be talking with my mate Tom Doig and heading back with him to the Latrobe Valley with his recently released book, Hazelwood a ripping read and an integral piece of Australian history. We've been to the Latrobe Valley many times on this show. Uh, we see the valley as the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, the vanguard of the industrialization and the transition away from coal. What happens if it's not handled correctly? Last month, the book titled Hazelwood was released from embargo following a plea period after a court case against the mine's owner, French company Ongi. The book is a description of the 2014 Hazelwood mine fire and the aftermath. Uh, we, sp- we are speaking to the author, Tom Doig, on a pre-recorded call. Tom, welcome to the show. Okay, thanks for having me. You wrote a terrific book already on the mine fire called The Coal Face. Why revisit the subject again? Um, so I wrote The Coal Face uh, in a hurry, in a kind of white heat, to be honest, um, because the the disaster had happened and the disaster response um, from the Liberal Victorian government at the time was pretty useless. And so I guess I I felt like there was a lot of unfinished business and I wanted to um, draw people's attention to it as quick as possible. Um, And in a way, uh, so so the coalface pointed everything towards the need to to reopen the Hayeswood Mine Fire Inquiry and to do a better job. (laughs) Um, I think I literally ended the book saying... Daniel Andrews just got elected and he promised to reopen the mine for inquiry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it was that yeah. kind of on the nose. Um, but, but in the process of, of re- researching and writing that book, um, I left a lot of stuff out and there was a lot of stuff I didn't even get to start researching. So I, I was very aware that there was a longer, more complex, more difficult story there that I really wanted to tell. Um, plus, I mean, a more practical uh, reason as well is that I was enrolled um, in a PhD program at Monash and I had to produce a, a book for that. And this Hazelwood thing was just so much better than my other idea. I ditched my other idea and thought I'd, I'd write a bigger, bigger book on the, on the Hazelwood story. Fantastic. Um, and so the Hazelwood uh, um, is very much a book about transformation uh, mm-hmm. of those in the Valley from politically passive uh, to formidable Wendy Farmer, uh, who we've had on the show before, um, said she just used to tick a box at elections. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but now, but 
halfway through, she's marching down the street yelling through a megaphone. And why did everyone begin so passively? What's the story there? Oh, look, that's a great question. Look, I think, I think if you go back a few decades in the Latrobe Valley, um, it was a, it was a company town. You know, if you go back a hundred years, um, the state electricity commission was set up and it was basically a military operation set up by the war hero, uh, Sir John Monash, who returned from World War One triumph, um, did a bit of industrial espionage in, in Germany, mm. got some designs and, and applied them. And they, they built the town of Yulon where they wanted, uh, filled it with who they wanted and people would do, did what they told. Um, and, you know, there's a famous quote from uh, Justice Judge Stretton from the 40s after disaster there, where he was like, people in... Um, and you'll have everything that they could desire. I'm, I'm not uh, getting this exactly right, but everything they desire, except for freedom or the right to say anything. Um, <laughs> it was very much the sense of like, if you do what the company tells you, you'll be right, um, but, but don't step out of line. And that sort of continued through in, in less sort of uh, less extreme forms well into the late 20th century. And, um, you know, for, for, for the people who were working in Hayeswood Mine or Loyang or Yulon, you know, they had jobs for life and there was a loyalty that went with that. And privatization kind of disrupted that in terms of, you know, most people lost their jobs. The people who still had jobs were getting paid huge salaries compared to what they had been. But I think there was still a sense that um, either people were working for the mine and getting paid very, very well, so they didn't want to rock the boat, or there was a sort of a new... Um, population and new community in, in the Latrobe Valley of people who were very poor, um, marginalized, sometimes, you know, single mums, refugees, people with, with traumatic um, backgrounds, who, who I think were just, you know, just a real underclass and who didn't feel they were in a position to speak out about anything, you know, people who sort of yeah. got, got a raw deal their entire life and, you know, had never been able to get anything done about it beforehand. So, so in a way, when the mine fire hit, why would they expect anything different? Um, but then luckily there were the Wendy Farmers of the world, the Ron Ipsons. Um, there was this little, I'd, I'd almost say there was a little stratum of Latrobe Valley society, right? Who were sort of educated enough, confident enough, um, you know, maybe, you know, middle-class enough that they felt like they could speak out, um, but they weren't part of the power structures, right? They weren't working in council. They weren't in the unions. They weren't in the power stations. So, so, and they wanted change. So, so there was a there was a small gang of, of these people um, who got really pissed off, and and Wendy Farmer, of course, also got radicalised by her ratbag daughter, who um, <laughs> left Valley and went to Uni in Melbourne and studied political science and got involved in the Socialist Alternative uh, Party and, and that kind of stuff. And she really, like Naomi, really radicalised her mum and was like, "This is terrible, mum. You need to have a protest." And and Wendy you know, came around to that and quickly realised she had a uh, talent for rebel rousing. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing where she's, um, the, the part of your book where she's about to go on stage and um, talk to the talk to the community and she's really nervous. She has all these notes, but then it just starts, starts flowing spontaneously and, like, she just gets mm. this huge reaction. Um, I love that bit. Uh, so... Yeah, it's great. Um, could you explain um, a little bit about how the fire politically activated that that stratum of the valley? Yes, yes. So look, I think I think the main thing that happened really is that 
the fire was was really bad, right? Like so, so the mine is a huge open cut coal mine for, for um, those those readers who aren't or those listeners, sorry, who aren't familiar with that. Um, a huge big expanse of, of brown coal, and it's only four hundred meters away from the town, and it's directly upwind from the town. So when the fire caught hold, it was just pluming, you know, poisonous smoke, uh, ash, dust, carbon monoxide, fine particulate matter into into the town and, and as well as more broadly not just Morwell but Terelgan, Moe, Newbridge, Churchill, like the, the whole region. Um so so people in the region were getting, you know, terrible health um effects like, you know, headaches, bleeding noses, there were kids with bleeding eyes, there's people's pets were literally dying in the yards, like, you know, chickens and cats and dogs and birds were dying. So it was it was quite kind of, you know, apocalyptic for some people. But then, at the kind of level of state response, um, it was it was it was terrible, and there was a lot of kind of um, denial. Really, there was a lot of you know a miniature version almost of what you've been seeing Trump and Bolsonaro doing um, with COVID. You know, sort of saying it's fine, it doesn't matter, it's not a big deal. You know, the the, the chief health officer at the time, Rosemary Lester, literally said, "I expect to see no long-term health effects." from this, this disaster. And you could literally Google um, effects of PM2, like fine particulate matter pollution and get a hit from the state's own uh, like environment website, which says PM 2.5's cause heart attacks, strokes, cancer, aneurysms, you know, all this stuff. So, so there was this kind of blanket denial coming, coming down from the premier Dennis Napthine, from the health minister, David Davis, from the, the health officer. And so I think people, had a very strong sense that they were being lied to and that their their reality on the ground was not being acknowledged. And so so I think because of that, and then there was sort of strong community organising. Actually, I'd, I'd say some of it was catalyzed by Naomi Farmer, the, the rat bag, the aforementioned rat bag, mm-hmm. writing an article for, for Red Flag magazine, a yeah. socialist that went, that went mega viral in the valley. It, it got so many hits, it crashed the, the servers of, mm-hmm. of, of Red Flag. And, and, and um, Naomi got hundreds of new friends on Facebook. And so, you know, people wanted to t- chat to her about this. So she, and then her mum and then other people sort of started organizing on Facebook. And, and, you know, Naomi was like, let's have a rally. The rally was huge. There were like, well, there were 6,000 people there, but in a town of 14,000 people. It's mm-hmm. a pretty good, you know, it's nearly half the town kind of thing. And I think once people started meeting and, and talking, and I think there was a lot of chat going on in social media and, and a range of different places as well. Um, the whole thing kind of snowballed, and and in the if you look into the disaster studies literature, people talk about um, effective communities of disasters, uh, disaster victims coming together and and forming these sort of spontaneous social movements. Um, it's in a way, in a way, what's happening with Black Lives Matter is another version of that, right? Like there's an affected community that's that's um, noticing some sort of injustice or atrocity, and they come together and there can be really powerful action and it can then sometimes disperse you know like sometimes it goes forward to make lasting change and sometimes it leads into other um movements or policy and sometimes it sort of just peters out yeah um so we we this may we had the demolition of hazelwood's uh eight chimneys which was an mm-hmm. important moment um for coal within australia um and yeah. did did that did that stir feelings in you? 
Yeah, look, Kurt, it was really weird for me. It was super poignant and bittersweet, um, not least because of, um, I, I moved to New Zealand at the end of last year because um, my partner's got a job over here for now. And um, so, so I was watching on the live stream. I wasn't able to be uh, in the Latrobe Valley. I left my home of Melbourne after being there for 20 years. So it was very surreal being in regional New Zealand, watching a live stream of this quite spectacular, dramatic you know the collapse and, and you should all google it it's amazing the, the footage is, is really astounding and you see the the dust from all of the um asbestos in the in the stacks mixing with the coal dust and apparently it's safe and fine and you know you know there, there were lots of safety people on the ground um so it was but i was quite obsessed with the stacks you know every time because i drove to town i went i visited more well at least 20 times when I was doing my research and went back for other yeah. events and performances and stuff. And, and every time you come over the, the haunted hills, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so named because of the, the creaking and groaning of the brown coal in the, in the hills that creates these weird Amazing. ghostly effects. You come over the haunted hills and you'd see, first you'd see Yalon on the left and then you see Loyang in the distance and then Hazel on the right. And it was this quite dramatic kind of panoramic moment. So the fact that that's gone now is quite, strange for me um and it is sad and i think you know in a perfect world where things where money's no object it would have been lovely i think to preserve all of that plant as an relics of industrial history and all that kind of thing but that was going to cost like tens of millions of dollars per year um just to stop it from falling over which is yeah. like you know, no one's idea of a good use of money um <laughs> but but the other thing that's really amazing and weird and, and poignant kurt is that uh, and you've read my book, so you know this, but so the very sort of final scene at the very end of the book is um, with our man, David Briggs, this, this poor fellow who was working as an yeah. earthworker and he got really bad lung, lung um, disease from, from being exposed to all the dust. And he's sort of, he's, he's not dead yet, but he's very ill and he's never going to get better. And I wrote, I wrote this before the stacks came down. I wrote it back in 2017. I sort of said, and, and again, I'll, I'll quote myself imperfectly, you know, David is looking forward to when the stacks come down on that day, he'll, you know, pull up a chair on his porch, have a glass of ginger beer and watch. Um, Cause he, he lives up in the hills. Um, yeah. And he could see the tiny little top ends of the stacks. Um, but when, when they actually did come down, um, cause I'm still in contact with David and his partner, Penny, Penny sent me a picture of David watching the stacks come down. Um, uh, anyway, great. He was able to stand, which which was a happy surprise because often he's hooked up to oxygen and stuff. But it was literally a picture of David standing by the fence watching the stacks come down. And so that was quite kind of, that was super, super poignant for me. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, I, I, I feel like it. I've been there probably about a dozen times. And it, mm. it does that. Yeah, there is a feeling of uh, immenseness just when you come over those hills and you see that that single vista in one in one field of view and mm. yeah i don't know how it would be uh it, yeah with the with the stacks gone because you could kind of see it from everywhere in the valley as well um yeah but thank you so people much for your... it, yeah people called it the um the eiffel tower <laughs> of morwell you know and it is <laughs> it's, it's sad that it's gone hey but thank you for having me kurt Thanks so much for your time, time Tom. Um, and you can get Tom's uh, book, Hazelwood, from any decent bookshop over the internet uh, if you're here in Melbourne. Um, it's a fantastic part of Australian history that unveils the character of power in a crisis in this country. Thanks so much, Tom. Cheers, mate. How 
I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. Right now, solar, wind power, hydropower, and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. I need more information, Hal. I can't give that to you, Dave. Tune in to BZE Technology on Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. When? Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. The current issue of the quarterly essay is called Cole's Curse. It describes how Australia became a commodity-based economy with a political system corrupted by the influence of coal lobby groups. This more than any vote has led to inaction on climate change. We are joined by the author, Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University, Judith Brett. And I, I just want to say that uh, what we talk about here is absolutely no substitute for reading The Coal Curse, which explores all, all these details in, in much greater, um, well, everything in much greater detail. Judith, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us here. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, so you began your essay uh, during the bushfires uh, and I could tell behind the professional composure there seemed to be genuine frustration perhaps even anger um, what was your motivation for writing it? Look I, I, um, I pitched the, court, the, the idea for this quarterly essay to Black Ink in around September so I couldn't have um, foreseen the bushfires which would make climate change an even more urgent issue than it already is my, look, my motivation was just a sense of frustration at the sort of impasse Australian mm. politics seem to be at in relation to developing, um, you know, proper, you know, the sort of necessary things that we need. But it was also a growing sense of alarm at the complacency of our political leaders about actually what is likely, what we hope will happen with coal that the world will move away from it and the vulnerabilities of the Australian economy when that happens. And it seemed to me that a sort of refusal to face those vulnerabilities and to sort of think hard about the nature of our economy, particularly our exports, um, and, that, and that our situation in terms of exports had, had sort of deteriorated really, um, or our, our economy was becoming less diverse than it had, say, been uh, a decade or so ago. And I have to say, I was also partly influenced in my thinking on this about by an article that I'd read in the Australian Financial Review with the headline, Rich, Dumb and Getting Dumber, mm. that was a, um, a report of um, a, a, an index developed by Harvard, Harvard University. It was an index of economic complexity. And it showed that if you look at our export profile, Australia has the export profile of a third world country and that this, this, the fact that we relied so heavily on the export of unprocessed primary commodities meant that, um, you know, put us down near Senegal and Zambia and countries like that. Now, um, this index over exaggerated our dumbness because, you know, we know that um, we'd been developing exports in higher education, for example, uh, you know, which is clearly intellect and skills-based. But the big story there was the collapse of um, sophisticated manufacturing. We had no 
sophisticated manufacturing in our exports, but also we had very little of it left in our economy at large. So it was that, I think, that was the motivation to try to write a sort of a history of this um, that would help people understand where we were and the policy dilemmas we were facing. And that's, that's sort of where I want to, want to take this, which is what I really loved about it was that you were looking at, um, our, our, at Australia in terms of as a product of its economic history um, and how we are so dependent on commodities for export now. Um, there's another story that's inside your essay, which is talking about our manufacturing industry or lack thereof, which only employs, I think, 6% of the workforce, uh, which, is, which is more than mining, which is 1.3%. Um, uh, but I, I loved um, how you described how we ended up here. Um, people often see it just as a, a product of neoliberal economics, but it's, it's a richer story than that. Could you just please take us through the story of manufacturing in Australia just as briefly as you can? Yes, I can. Well, really, um, uh, Australia, look, Australia became rich first because of wool and then minerals, and we were able to earn a good export income from from those industries. But the thing is that neither of them require huge numbers of people um, to produce that wealth. Now, Australia wanted to become a bigger country. It didn't just want to be a country that exported wool and made some squatters you know, rich and had and had just sort of rich port cities. We wanted to be a nation with a substantial population. To do that, we had to get jobs. And essentially, we've provided jobs by developing a manufacturing sector, which has been protected. That started in Victoria in the 1850s after the gold rushes. But the big, um, and it continued, you know, at Federation, we opted for protective tariffs. Um, and then in terms of the more, con more contemporary period, the big push to develop our manufacturing came up with the Second World War. And again, it's tied to our desire for a bigger population. We knew uh, coming out of the war, policymakers said Australia has to populate or perish. We have to incre increase our migration. Now, if we wanted people to come here, we had to be able to provide jobs for them. How were we gonna provide jobs? By the development of protected manufacturing. And the thing about this manufacturing was it was manufacturing for a domestic market. It wasn't manufacturing for export. And that was a, a crucial decision that was made. Um, and it all went well, really, for a couple of decades. Um, then by the 1980s, I mean, what effectively happens is because our manufacturing was protected from external competition. It became inefficient. It became uncompetitive in global terms. Australian consumers were paying a lot for clothing and furniture and cars. Um, so, and that was, and and also, Australian farmers were paying a lot for their machinery and cars. You know, it was making the things we did export um, more expensive to produce. So. Effectively, from the, from the 1960s onwards, economists were saying, look, we've got to start bringing down this tariff wall. Um, there was, of course, a lot of opposition to this from the manufacturers and from the trade unions because manufacturing employed a lot of people. The, uh, it was the Hawke-Keating government 
and when John Button was the Minister for Industry that really set about seriously dismantling this tariff wall. And the aim when they did this was to try to build a viable export-oriented manufacturing sector. That's what they wanted to do. They didn't want to destroy it. They wanted to open it up to competition and that was supposedly going to, you know, let the strong firms develop and we would have we would be able to move away a bit from being a primary producing, being so dependent on primary products for our exports. Now, that worked for a couple of decades, maybe about 15 years. By the year 2000, our manufacturing exports were increasing. But then, really, the pace of globalisation picked up and, the, and China, the industrialisation of China turned it into this sort of basically the world centre for manufacturing. Now, Australian manufacturing manufacturers were not the only people to suffer here. I mean, we happened in, in America with, and um, across the Western world. But we had such, we were start, we, our manufacturing sector was so fragile that it effectively blew much of it away. So the manufacturing sector that we have left, you know, and then we know that around 2013, when the Hawk, uh, not Hawk, Hocking, uh, Hocking and Abbott effectively gave up on the Australian car industry. Mm. So now when you look drill down into who's actually employed in our manufacturing sector, there's very few skilled metal workers. There's pastry cooks and bakers and storemen and packers. I mean and and, and that's really what the truth is of that Harvard index. Mm. You know, that's saying look you haven't got the skilled manufacturing base and it's from that skilled manufacturing base that drives a lot of product innovation. So I hope that was comprehensive. No, no, that's, that's, that's great. Um, and so I, it's so interesting to hear how we arrived in this, in this place because, and we're sort of, we're in a state now where we're sort of stuck with commodities, it feels like. And, and, there's a really interesting portion of your essay where you discuss the mindset of climate deniers. And that's, I think that's an unexplored dimension of this impasse. Um, it being a, a predominantly male, late middle-aged mode of thought. Um, and I'll, I'll just take a quote from, from your essay, which is, um, it speaks about a focus group. So it says the, the focus group participants with one exception were aging white men who held prominent positions in academia and large companies. The researchers concluded that their climate skepticism was linked to their fears about the disappearance of the masculine dominated industrial modernity in which they had enjoyed their power and success. So that psychological argument is not one you hear very often, but it, it makes more sense to me than almost any of the others. So do you think we need to look more at um, a psychological understanding why we can't progress on climate action as a country? Um, look, that, that, that uh, research was, was, was done in Sweden. Um, what It's both alarming and comforting in a sense because these people are ageing and they're dying off and there's a quite different mindset amongst younger people. So it is about, I think, particular um, men, a lot of them engineers, um, who... who have a, a sense of control over their world and for whom that's very much linked to their their masculinity, their identity, their sense of their success in life. Hmm. And climate change, I mean, they have a real fear that 
the response to climate change will be a sort of a deindustrialization and their grandchildren will be back living in tents or something you know like there's a there's a sort of block um and then there's a sort of group think because one of the things i go on to talk about in the second part of the essay is the way uh, the fossil fuel industry in particular was very successful in mm. building networks of climate deniers and getting them in touch with each other, putting them in touch with think tanks in the United States and building up a sort of a sense of identity. So it's a bit like the way the Trump supporters won't wear a mask. You know, that being being sceptical, they call themselves, about climate change became a sort of mark of, mark of being a, a conservative. And I think that's happened in America, it's happened in here, and it's been incredibly damaging to our... Um, to our debate because once things become um, in a sense baked into a person's sense of themselves they become impervious to reason and argument and to compromise yeah once something's part of somebody's identity it's very it's much more difficult to shift that's um, right yeah and so this this impasse cannot be overcome with logic that it, it kind of that fear of something as critical as as the, someone's world view it almost seems uh, well it's not reptilian but it, it seems quite more fundamental and elemental um and it's very defensive yeah. and, or, or you know there's this sort of um yeah and I, I, I came, I thought about this. I went and did a talk on Alfred Deacon and Federation for the Samuel Griffith Society. And there was quite a lot of these sort of people there. Mm. And I was talking to a very nice aging, you know, lady. And she all of a sudden made some comment about climate science being a religion out of the blue, mm. which I sort of, you know, said no, tried to tackle her on it. But it was like, you know, she was repeating something she'd heard in the, in the circles in which she moves. And then another older man started talking to me about climate change and it was like they just saw this as like a waving a flag this is the sort of person i am i'm a conservative yeah. and being a conservative means I'm a, I'm, i deny climate change and i think that's been a huge i mean in a way that served the interests of the fossil fuel companies it's meant that we've they've they've kept themselves going for for longer and um but I think it, that, that their time is running out was, you know, looking at quite a bit of the evidence, you know, capital is deserting coal. Yeah. And there's, there's, uh, we're going to be talking to um, uh, Bruce, Bruce Malcolm, who's, um, I think he works with Tim Buckley, who's a, there's a, uh, on, on this same show. So um, I'm really interested in exploring that um, 133 um, financial firms have, have left coal since COVID and I'm interested in, in that overlap. Um, yes, in fact, he's really on top of that. Yeah. That, 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 flight, that capital flight. Um, and there's, but there's a great passage in your essay where you talk about how Malcolm Turnbull sits down um, with members of the, the right faction and, and tries to talk through with them in his admittedly condescending way but the the advantages of renewables particularly uh from an economic point of view and that he is 
he, he just can't convince them and the numbers don't mean anything. And, and he's told it's a religion um, when he when Yeah, he that's walks. right. I'm sorry. I think he was talking mainly with the nationals mm. who, as we know, you know, are trying to get the government to invest in a new coal-fired power plant. Now, the fact that they're trying to get the government to do this is evidence that actually, you know, private capital won't go near it. Um, and Bridget McKenzie says to him at the end, it's a religion, Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's right. But this, again, it's it's something about their, they've, they've taken this up as a flag and it becomes, you know, about winning and losing and, it, and it's no longer about the rational even market-based solutions. And, I, I mean, it it is like the National Party has always been much more prone to government-funded solutions than the Liberals, but that a coalition government would even consider this, it's like a sort of a, a, to nationalise a failing industry, you know? Mm. Like, it's mm. astonishing. Yeah. Um, and I guess uh, there is such little capacity for change there once you begin to think of things as a religion um, and it's put on such absolute terms um, and that's sort of where your your essay finishes which is really on a, a somber note where you say that when you think we're more likely or you sort of nod to, to the likelihood that we're going to sink into becoming a third-rate economy rather than what Ross Garneau would say a, a, an energy superpower um, and I'm interested in, in anything that's happened since uh, you've published, even though it was quite recently, it, anything that's happened with COVID, uh, has, has that changed your mind at all? Well, look, I think one of the things that COVID's done is it's made Australians um, acutely aware of something that we sort of all already knew, which is that we don't make much here anymore. And so there has been a bit of renewed interest and push in reviving manufacturing uh, in, in some capacity, as much as anything for um, to protect ourselves against vulnerabilities of supply chains. So that's been good. Then the next question is, if we revive manufacturing, we're going to need more energy. And that's where we've still got in the this government, I think, sort of old, old thinking. Mm. You know, they're saying, well, we've got to push gas. There's a lot of pushback against this. It, it's pretty fluid, I think, at the moment. I mean, I think this government is uh, doesn't have many any visionary thinkers in it. Um, like it's interesting on it, you know, the COVID commission. They're sort of like from the old economy. There's none of the new entrepreneurs. There's nobody from renewable energy. On the other hand, renewable energy is getting a lot more public airspace and a lot more traction. Um, it's been interesting since I published the quarterly essay, different people contact me and the CEO of um, the West Darlings mm. no, anyways, Queensland, sort of big shire in Queensland, contact me and one of his, to say that actually renewables are just taking off there, there's huge renewable um, solar farms being built and wind farms so, you know what, in a way, our hope has to be with the market rather than with government at the moment because I feel as if we're governed by yesterday's people. Yeah, great. Um, so the Cold Curse is available in bookshops and some news agencies. Uh, I've seen it in there as well. And you can get the audio book, which is read by Judith through Audible 
the ebook and print copy via the website quarterlyessay.com.au. Thank you so much for taking that time, Judith. Thank you very much. Cyclones is pretty grim. Shocking. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5 p.m. on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. BZE Radio at 5 p.m. on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. While the world has been distracted with the COVID crisis, the corporate giants have abandoned coal, or so many commentators have said. The numbers are convincing. Up to 133 financial institutions have left coal since the first lockdown began, according to Tim Buckley, including Japan's three largest institutional banks, who will exclude any financing of new coal-fired power. We are joined by Tim, who is the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis Director of Energy Finance Studies, to discuss this flight from the dirtiest of fossil fuels. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show, Tim. My pleasure. Nice to talk with you today. Uh, thank you. Um, firstly, can you describe this flight from coal? Yeah, certainly. And I might just um, just be, I am a finance analyst, so I'll just pick you up on the, the way you, you introduce that. The What we've been tracking is globally significant financial institutions who have formal written coal exit policies. Now, whether they're restrictions, divestment, exclusions, um, over 2020, we've seen 45 new or updated policies. Uh, so the number you mentioned was the total number. A lot of those moved last year and the year before. In fact, they started back in 2015 with a few Nordic, French and uh, leaders and the World Bank is the mm. one I'm thinking of. The World Bank right. really sort of kicked this off. So what's, what we've been monitoring for the last two years now is that the momentum is really building. And so what we've seen is 45 new or and it's 45 now because I was just literally adding a new one this morning before this mm. call, the MP Parabar just updated their exclusion. And so now what they're doing is excluding coal mining, they're excluding coal-fired power plants, and now they're moving to exclude coal-related infrastructure. In other words, the enablers of the coal. Um, because at the end of the day, if you own a coal port like Newcastle or like Abbott Point, you are totally exposed to the commodity and you are actually, if that port is expanding and you're facilitating the expansion of that by being an owner and a funder. And so they're actually saying, well, let's look at the whole supply chain, not just look at the coal mine. And uh, I think that's really critical. And that's what we're starting to see with people like the European Investment Bank, who've now gone beyond coal and are in fact saying, we literally will not lend to any fossil fuel player at all it's totally inconsistent with the Paris Agreement. And so that's a very long-winded intro to, uh, to answer your question. But what we are seeing is investors using the Paris Agreement, but I think what they're really doing is actually just protecting themselves from stranded assets. At the end of the day, banks are very good at looking after number one, and they are more than happy to lend to anything if they can make a, a holy dollar now, now what they're doing is they're seeing that lending to coal is just losing them lots and lots of money. Lending them to gas and to oil is losing them lots and lots of money. So they're wrapping it up in nice moralistic high ground sort of mm. announcements. But they're actually, in my view, doing it for a fundamentally uh, 
different reason, which is to protect their own capital. And I don't care what their motive is. It's aligning with Paris, and that's critical. I'm really interested in, in the distinction that you um, made there between coal and other fossil fuels, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll jump onto that in a little bit. But I, I'm, I'm also um, really fascinated by the psychology at play. Um, I, uh, you mentioned um, something in, in an article that you wrote, wrote um, which was potentially there being a relationship about uh, between COVID and, and coal divestment. And um, is that accurate? And, and I'm, I'm interested to unpack that a little bit. Is, is toilet paper involved somehow? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the Australian public might think it is. No. Uh, there is some interesting parallels. Now, it's parallels, coincidences, and motives, and they're all interrelated, and I'll just maybe unpack that. One part of why I did that was the International Energy Agency is or has historically been funded by the OECD governments. But what's less well known is that the IEA also accepts funding from fossil fuel companies. And so most of their discretionary research budget is funded by the incumbent industries, the big, powerful incumbent industries. Now, 20 years ago, that wasn't a problem. But when you start to talk about alignment with Paris, well, the incumbent industries, by definition, are not aligned with Paris. And so they've actually been using, in my view, the IEA to, to mask, deflect, deflate and um, distract so that we're less focused on the Paris Agreement. And so you'll see people like our energy minister, Angus Taylor, say, well, the IEA is their central forecast. Um, says gas is going to be used for decades and decades to come. And I'll go, yeah, but the IEA's central policy is not aligned with Paris. Now, yeah. Angus Taylor is not aligned with Paris. So <laughs> you've got to actually be careful when you're looking at information. So um, what, the, what the funding um, and the motive of the people behind it, because at the end of the day, when your pay depends on you having a view, you tend to have that view. So that's a long-winded introduction again. The IEA made some comments about two months ago saying, oh, the global COVID-19 pandemic would slow the energy transition. And I called out that that was actually a false claim. And in fact, what they had to do was actually reverse it a month later. And they actually have now published stats that prove that they were totally wrong in their early assessment. And some of those stats were that they forecast gas consumption would be down 6 to 8%. They forecast oil production and consumption would be down 8 10%. They forecast coal consumption would be down 8 to 10%. And they forecast wind and solar production this year would be up 6 to 8%. And so, in fact, what they – and emissions as a result would be down. So they've actually had to eat their words and recognise that COVID has actually accelerated the transition. Uh, now, it's, it's done it for various reasons and probably the most direct one. Uh, let's have a look at India for a minute. Indian energy consumption and demand, by definition, in the last three months, in the three months to um, in fact, yesterday, is down 20% year on year. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a staggering. So Prime Minister Modi worked really hard. He, 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 not embraced, he, he embraced the necessity of hard and fast national measures to deal with COVID. And so he did a national lockdown. Uh, they've since come out of that marginally. But India, like America, is actually suffering quite badly under COVID. But 
the government led by Prime Minister Modi started very aggressively to try and contain the pandemic. That mm. smashed industry and demand at one point was down 25, 30%. Now, what was really interesting is that within that framework, total electricity demand now is down like 20% in the last three months, year on year, but coal production and consumption in the power sector is down 26%. So if I interpret that or interpret that for you and your listeners, that means coal has worn 100% of the demand destruction of the COVID pandemic because 70% of India's electricity comes from coal and coal has copped it in the neck. Now you might ask, well, is that coincidence? Not at all. It's all to do with the merit order effect that coal once built is the high marginal cost of supply. Wind and solar have a zero marginal cost of supply. So the merit order says that the economically sensible dispatch of electricity you take the lowest marginal cost of supply first, and to the extent you can't use that, you then use higher costs. So it's actually highlighted that coal is vulnerable for yet another reason, that in a demand destruction event like COVID, coal-fired power plants get it absolutely in the neck. So the average utilisation rate in India in the last three months of plant is below 40%. Now, they're designed to run at 80% utilisation. So as our energy minister regularly cites, I mean, he, he loves baseload coal. Why? Because baseload power, because baseload power drives coal. Mm. But renewables are the absolute antithesis of baseload power. In fact, they kill baseload power plants over time. So to me, it's actually accelerating the transition. Right, right. Um, I'm, I'm interested as well in that the, uh, BlackRock investment managers left coal in January, which was before, before COVID had taken hold um, in the Western world anyway. And many commentators discussed the idea of a tipping point. Um, how much do you think is the current flight um, following the leader and, and how much of it is, is COVID related? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. In IEFA, we constantly debate, is BlackRock a leader or is it a laggard that's trying to catch up or is it totally amoral? And I would actually argue it's ironically bits of all three of them. Uh, we know Larry Fink, the founder of BlackRock, is totally agnostic when it comes to climate science. Uh, he's made that very He did a tour in February of Australia and he talked up the merits of oil and gas to our government. Uh, at the same time as his company was divesting thermal coal. And so they, I think that announcement by Larry Fink and by BlackRock, and it was written by the CEO of BlackRock and the founder of BlackRock, that's Larry Fink. He wrote a personal letter to all of his CEOs that he, his company invests in, which is literally every CEO in the world, and told them, we are going to divest thermal coal and we're going to start to align with Paris. Now, when a $7 trillion asset manager tells you we are going to align with Paris, then they will wake up and listen. So they then would immediately say, does he mean it? Now, that's where in IEFA we had a lot of internal debate. I'm on the positive side. At the end of the day, BlackRock made five very, very important steps in the right direction, and they hadn't made really any steps in the right direction prior to that in, in the direction of the Paris Agreement alignment. Now, my colleagues at IEFA would say, yeah, but they have to make 50 steps. 
Now, again, my study of global financial institutions, and by the way, I was managing director at Citigroup for 20 years for my sins. I, I know how banks think. Um, when you make that first step, the first step is always the hardest. As my old teacher used to say, a job started, a job half done. So they've moved five steps, not one step. Now, sure, they've got to move another 45 steps to actually align with Paris. So there's no pretense that BlackRock has aligned with Paris, but they have made the first five steps. And, and what they actually announced in May was that they had completed the divestment of all thermal coal exposures across debt and equity, across $1.7 trillion of funds, done. So I would say BlackRock was an absolute pivotal moment in the long-term death of coal, of thermal coal, because the biggest investor in the world, the biggest financial institution in the world by a factor of two, has said that they will no longer fund it in their active funds and that they will take measures across the whole fund, the whole seven trillion, to actually progress this debate. And we've seen progressive follow-on announcements that are going further. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, I'm all, uh, so I particularly like that your take on this is, is, and I think so many analysts um, jump between the, the amoral um, the amoral t take versus the one where there's some level of morality or some uh, within there. Um, I'm interested in in trying to to figure that out a little bit, and I'm wondering if do you think that sh any any shareholder activism uh, plays a part in this? Yes, I think it has absolutely played a key role because at the end of the day, uh, we talked about the amorality of financial institutions. And what goes with that is a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of greenwash. So what I think firms, shareholder activist groups like Market Forces and ACCR have been holding these financial institutions to account and pointing out when their commentary and their actions are not aligned. And so take, for example, BlackRock. BlackRock has for many years said that they would much prefer to engage than divest. They don't think divestment works, they're no longer having a seat at the table once they've divested is the way they would argue it. Now, what you can then go through is their voting track record and you can evaluate whether or not they have actually voted against boards when the board is clearly not aligning with what BlackRock says they want from their investors. And then you can also have a look at how their engagement track record's actually gone. And an example of that was Peabody Energy. BlackRock was one of the biggest shareholders of Peabody all the way down to bankruptcy. Now, in other words, if you actually are sitting there engaging with the dinosaur, the dinosaur ignores you, but you don't divest, then your, your commentary and your engagement is a waste of time. And ultimately, you just go down with the dinosaur. So Peabody went bankrupt in 2016. BlackRock lost a lot of money for its shareholders or its investors. And it had the same problem. It engaged with GE for 10 years while GE went from a $500 billion company to a $200 billion company. Well, a lot of good the engagement did. So we highlighted that in a major report in 2019 that BlackRock had lost maybe $90 billion waiting for companies it was engaging with to actually respond to them. Now, I'm using the word dinosaur. Certain companies will not respond. So 
try and engage with a dinosaur, it's a waste of time. Engage with someone who is interested, who is going to pivot, who responds to your pressure, positive or good. Most companies will respond, but a lot of boards get into group think and they get captured by, well, we're a coal company. Coal is always going to be the answer. Yeah. And so they can't think outside of the box and engaging with a dinosaur is a waste of time. So I think when you have activists, NGOs involved calling out that hypocrisy, pointing out to the board that what they're doing is actually failing in their fiduciary duty, it does strike a chord. And we probably saw that most starkly with the Woodside AGM this year, where 51% of shareholders aligned with the activists, ACCR brought a motion to say Woodside had to align with the Paris Climate Agreement. The chairman, Richard Goyder, said, no, we don't. We know better than you. And the shareholders actually voted with the activists. Now, Richard Goyder had the hide to say, well, actually, you actually need 75% of the vote to make the impact. But he's also a very, very astute businessman. He won't allow a vote next year to get to 75%. He'll move this year. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that's, yeah, that's that's such an amazing achievement from, like, from ACCR. Um, I, I never realised that they were getting um, those sorts of numbers. Um, well, Tim, that, was, I, that I, was a record high. And I, I'm sorry, I, I've interrupted you, but that, that was a record high. But it's also very, very telling because they went after the biggest guy in the room deliberately. Mm. Everyone else will follow the lead of Woodside. All the... The, all the oil and gas companies around Australia will follow and watch and realise, well, hang on, they're next. Woodside will cave and everyone will follow, follow the leader. And so I, I'm pretty confident Woodside will not want to be embarrassed and get a massive rap over the knuckle by their yeah. shareholders because yeah. ultimately the shareholders do determine the direction of the company or should and it's a foolish chairman who'd stand in the way of the shareholders for too long after a vote like that. Definitely, such an interesting time. Thank you so much for um, for taking the time to speak with us, Tim. My pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks so much for listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show. This is 3CR, and I would like to thank our guests, Professor Judith Brett, Dr. Tom Doig, and Tim Buckley, for coming on our show, Cole. How did we get here, and how do we get out? Thanks also to Viv for a tireless work, and Andy. Saluba Bet. I'm Kurt Johnson, and you're listening to 3CR. An Exxon oil tanker, a CSR company, faced tough questioning at the company's annual general meeting today from concerned that payouts to workers affected by asbestos financially.
The blue sky time 